Today is 2006, September 25th. Lecture number four, Measuring the Earth. We'll begin in just a moment. Start that recording and get going. Today we're going to begin with essentially a discussion of the descriptive astronomy. What can we see in astronomy? What can we learn about the world using just the naked eye? There's no telescopes here. In fact, for much of the story that I'm telling, the telescope is going to be many millennia in the future. We are going to take a somewhat historical approach to this material, because not so much because the facts themselves are so easy to state. The historical stuff is useful because it shows you where those ideas come from. How did we figure out certain things that we now take as given and commonplace? And so today's lecture on measuring the Earth has the following key ideas. We're going to start with just a little bit of an overview of ancient ideas about the Earth. This gives you an overview of what I would call the common sense view of what our world is like. We talk about, for example, a flat earth or a world tree or various other metaphorical ways of speaking of the earth. We're going to jump from that to the view of the spherical earth, the idea that the earth is a spherical geometric form. It comes in a number of ways. The first appearance of the spherical earth in history is it's actually an appeal to perfect symmetry, an appeal to certain geometric ideals. And we'll talk a bit about how that's actually a strong motivating force behind ideas, what you think you frame the question as. And then a series of physical demonstrations by Aristotle in the third century, which showed that the Earth was a sphere. It wasn't simply an aesthetic argument, but you could actually demonstrate the sphericity of the Earth physically. We'll talk a bit about that. Once you've established the shape of the Earth being a sphere, it then becomes a question of just how big is that sphere? How do you measure the circumference of the Earth? We're going to look at two ways in which this was done in history. Eratosthenes of Cyrene in the 3rd century, uh, 2nd century BC, and Claudius Ptolemy in the 2nd century AD. Both of these measurements survived to us from antiquity in various forms and were highly influential in a lot of the thinking that led into the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, as we'll see. So today we're going to pick up the question of what is the Earth that we live on? How do we describe it as a physical body? If you look back in the earliest recorded history, the earliest existence of writing, you find that, in fact, the Earth is most commonly represented in those earliest writings as flat. This is not surprising. Remember that long before the existence of transportation technology, even sailing ships, one's experience of the world was strongly circumscribed by how far you could physically walk. And that distance is sufficiently small that unless you were an unusual person, your experience of the world looking out at the expanse around you, the Earth appears locally to be relatively flat. And we see this view embedded in a lot of literature. So it isn't just simply a crazy idea that happened here or there. In fact, it is the common idea that we can see to the earliest recordings of, of antiquity for the shape of the Earth. For example, let's take the works of Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey. In the Homeric view of the world, the Earth is a flat disk surrounded by a world ocean. They viewed the world simply as centered on the Mediterranean, the lands to the north and south, what we now call Europe and Africa, and then an immense ocean girdling around that. But they saw the world as flat and circular. If we go, instead of taking a, a Mediterranean-centric point of view, we go to the New World, to South America, we find, for example, the Inca of the Andean Highlands saw the Earth as a flat structure with four corners on it. In fact, the Inca did not call their land Peru, they called it Tehuantinsuyu, which translated from their language means the four corners of the earth. So they actually named their land for what their conception of the earth was, the world. Even the ancient Egyptians, 
who were somewhat different from the traditions that we're going to be mostly dealing with, saw the earth and the sky together as part of a whole structure. They saw a flat earth with mountains at the four corners of the earth, and they saw the sky as an immense tent stretched above over in the heavens. This idea of the sky stretching above a relatively flat surrounding earth is not a crazy one. It's actually one that we're going to take to a first approximation when we begin to describe phenomenon as seen from a particular location on the Earth. In fact, this whole idea of an overstretching firmament is a very old one. For example, if you go into the, into the Bible, into the book of Genesis, you see the description of the heavens as the firmament in the English translation in the King James Bible. But if you go back to the original Hebrew, you find the word racha, which refers to a hammered bowl as if it was hammered out of a single sheet of metal and laid over as a bowl of the sky. That's not just a metaphor, it's actually a very much what the sky looks like when you're looking at it at night, standing at a single location upon the Earth. So here, for example, is a modern reconstruction. This map here is a modern reconstruction of the Homeric view of the world. Not surprisingly, the islands of Greece are at the middle of the world. You always put yourself at the center. We have the Mediterranean. Those sections of Africa that they knew about, which was basically Libya, the Nile, and the Arabian Gulf, tending towards the Indus River, they didn't know too much about that, the Caspian Sea, and then Europe as far north as they knew, and then the opening of what later became known as Spain in the Straits of Gibraltar, and then surrounding it all was an immense world ocean. What's notable on this map are the things that are missing. You miss, for example, the island of Britain, and you don't have the entire Indian subcontinent. At the time of Homer, this is as much of the world as they knew. This is as far as they traveled and got information. Now, there's other cultures have brought up different ways instead of just viewing the Earth as flat. And their views of the world were much more metaphorical. For example, the world viewed as an immense tree. If you go into the Hindu Vedas, for example, they speak of the world metaphorically as a tree of knowledge which is holding up the universe. Again, the universe stretched sort of hemispherically above the heads. In the Norse Edas, the world is held up by Agrasil, which is the world ash tree. But again, this idea of a bowl of the heavens, and then something has to be physically holding it up, just in the same way that a tent is held up by a central pole. They don't stand up necessarily by themselves. Another view which was fairly common were world mountains. For example, the Brahmin, who lived in an Indian subcontinent, who knew something of the Himalayas, which are the highest mountains in the world, quite naturally living in that land, viewed the world as an immense mountain in they, which human beings lived in the flat zones. Of course, this got elaborated over time, and you thought of the immense world mountain resting on the back of elephants, which themselves were resting on the back of a giant turtle, which was swimming in an infinite sea. In fact, people have drawn actually pictures of this. But again, the idea here is a large flat earth surrounded by an immense ocean overstretched with a bowl of the heavens. This is a metaphorical translation of a common sense view, a commonplace view of what the earth looks like as viewed from, a, earth and sky look like viewed from a single location. Now, all of these views are representations. I mean, they probably didn't really think the elephants and all that were actually real. These are metaphors. In many ways, these myths and metaphors serve a very particular intellectual purpose. They try to make a very large and almost inintelligible world knowable and actually make in many ways it's beautiful. It, it serves the purposes of the people who invented these metaphors. They also seem to serve a cultural purpose as well. A lot of the elements of all of these views of the world are familiar cultural elements to the people who made them up. 
The Egyptians, for example, were desert dwellers. They used a new tense, for example. The, the Brahmin view of the world, they knew elephants, they knew mountains, and so those figured in their world. It's not surprising that the Norse peoples who lived in the very forested north picked trees, as the very largest trees as the center of their universe, the central structures of their universes. The problem of looking at these things is we often make the mistake of thinking this is the reality of it, when in fact remembering that these things are often informed by an aesthetic we can only begin to guess at. Because all we have are the words and stories, the cultures that built those words have long since vanished or are only dimly remembered. But we do, in fact, have one transmission from ancient times, which is actually part of our culture. And so it makes sense to spend some time looking at it, and that is the culture of ancient Greece. The ancient Greeks were an anomaly in the Mediterranean world. They were very different in many ways. They lived in a very small place, and yet they were immensely rich because of their trade networks throughout the Mediterranean. In fact, they made most of their wealth because they were the people who figured out not only how to make wine, but to make wine stable so it would survive over long distances. Combine that with olive oil, and they had two liquid gold that basically fueled their civilization's commerce. As a consequence, this great deal of wealth gave them a great deal of time to contemplate the world around them. The Greeks invented axiomatic geometry, and one of the things that came out of that invention of geometry was an appreciation of something we refer to as symmetry, geometry, and form. Symmetry is the fact that things look similar. There's roundness and shape to things that repeats when you turn it around. Shapes are not simply random. There's order and structure underneath. And the Greeks were very much intoxicated by geometry, form, and structure. They saw in this order a glimpse of what they thought was the underlying order of the universe. And to them, a sphere is the most perfect geometric shape they can imagine. It is perfectly symmetrical in all dimensions. A sphere, mathematically, is a surface equal distant from a single mathematical point in space. A circle, just in the same way that a circle, is the line that is equidistant from a single point on a flat plane. So these perfect ideas, these perfect forms, sphere in three dimensions, and the circle and the plane, are going to come back over and over again in Greek thinking. So compelling were these ideas that people began to impose this symmetry upon the world without any other evidence to support it than the feeling that the perfection that they saw in these forms must naturally be reflected in the world around them. The first real record of the use of a spherical Earth comes in around the year 500 BC at the hands of the Pythagoreans. You've all probably heard of the Pythagorean theorem, the, you know, the square of the hypotenuse, the sum of the squares are the other two sides of a right triangle. Pythagoras himself was kind of a cult figure. He actually lived um, not in Greece, but actually in Sicily. And with his school of mathematicians, probably not Pythagoras himself, but certainly his school of thought, proposed that the Earth must of course be spherical because the Earth, to be the carriage of man, must of course be the most perfect form in the universe. And the sphere is geometrically demonstrably that perfect form. So by imposing their view of the, of the primacy of symmetry and geometric order, they simply insisted the Earth must be a sphere, even though they had no evidence to that effect. About 400 BC, we see this idea coming in a much more reputable line. Pythagoras was kind of a disreputable, hippie sort of guy. Plato, a great student of Socrates, also espoused a spherical Earth. He described it in, during the course of one of his, his many dialogues, and this particular one, the one called the Phaedra, is where there's an explicit discussion of the sphericity of the Earth. And again, it's the necessity of the sphericity of the Earth on aesthetic grounds, that this is the most perfect spherical form, so of course the heavens and the Earth must take on that spherical form. 
but they had no physical evidence to that effect. So here's where an idea, a way of looking at the world, in this one, a world informed by knowledge of geometry, form, and symmetry, has imposed a particular picture. That's one way of approaching the world, is to simply impose one's view, how you think things ought to be. But in the end, that view is often unsatisfying because we'd like something a little bit more certainty than just, say, Pythagoras or Plato say so, however brilliant those men may have been. And to that, we have to move forward about two centuries to the work of Aristotle. Aristotle was the greatest scholar of antiquity. He was the tutor of Alexander the Great. He taught in Athens. He was a student of Plato's. And it was Aristotle for whom a lot of our understanding of Greek knowledge comes down because of his vast and extensive writings. Aristotle knew just about everything, or at least thought he did. In fact, Aristotle was a man to whom I do not know never seemed to come naturally. Some of his explanations are brilliant and insightful. Others are, well, he seemed to have an explanation for just about everything. In about the year 350, he wrote a book called On the Heavens. It's a very short little book, a little hard to read in translation, but their translations are available on the web, and I've got a link in, in the notes there for those who may be interested. He made the case for the Earth being spherical, starting out with the platonic idea of the sphere as the perfect ideal form, but then he deviated from Plato in a very important way. He then proceeded to illustrate this idea with physical examples demonstrating that the Earth was a sphere. The three basic examples he gave are as follows, and they're very illuminating. The first was to note that people living in the South see southern stellar constellations appear higher above their horizon than do people living in the North. For example, the star Canopus is very visible to people living in Egypt and the southern sections of the Nile, but barely rises above the horizon as seen from the latitude of Athens, Greece. And therefore, one gets the impression of going over the curve of a spherical Earth as you move further south and seeing a different part of an overarching spherical sky. The second was to note that during a lunar eclipse, when the moon passes into the shadow of the Earth, the shadow of the Earth projected upon the moon has a curved shape, demonstrating that the shape that is casting that shadow is spherical. We'll see a picture of this in just a second. And the third argument is a rather odd argument. Now, I've tried to summarize it in modern terms. Aristotle takes a number of very convoluted paragraphs to describe it. What he says is he says that the sphere is the most natural shape for the Earth, not because of some cosmic appeal to geometric symmetry, but because if you watch, if you drop an object, it naturally tends to fall towards the center of the Earth. And if the Earth was assembled from lumps of matter, those lumps of matter would naturally form themselves, pack themselves into a spherical shape. Now, without using the word gravity or using the word material forces like we would today, Aristotle has just opened a small door to the modern explanation for why bodies like the Earth are spherical, naturally occurring. It happens to be how gravity causes matter to pack together when the gravity is stronger than the forces that hold the material, rock and stuff, together. But he doesn't use those words because, well, for one, that would be about 20, almost 20 centuries too soon. But he starts seeing the idea that the reason the Earth is there is not because of aesthetics. There's an underlying physical reason, and that physical reason is knowable and understandable. This is one of Aristotle's great gifts to civilization. 
So let's go through at least the two observable proofs. This is, after all, mostly an astronomy class. Let's take this observation. By the time of the third century, the Greeks had a very widespread trade network throughout the entire Mediterranean world. And remember that Aristotle's famous pupil was Alexander the Great, who was the greatest conqueror of the time, who extended and brought Greeks to as far as you could travel by foot throughout the Mediterranean world, the Indian Ocean, the Indian continents, the Caucasus, and so forth. As a consequence, the Greeks, uh, under Alexander the Great, conquered Egypt all the way down to the lowest sections of the Nile and immediately set up trade networks between them. An astronomer working in Athens, Greece, looking south during the summertime, would see the very distinctive constellation of Scorpius the Scorpion appearing just above the southern horizon around midnight. If that same Greek astronomer were to travel along the trade routes to the lowest reaches of the Nile, a place called Syene, just before the first cataracts, the first major falls that stopped navigation, one would find in Syene that same constellation at midnight rose higher in the sky than is seen from Athens. The amount of difference between these, we would say in modern terms, is the difference between 38 degrees of northern latitude and 24 degrees of northern latitude. You're walking around the curve of the Earth, and so you naturally see new stars come above the southern horizon. By extension, if you proceeded even further so south, you would eventually reach lands where you would see stars that were utterly invisible to people living in the north. And similarly, people in the south coming north would see stars coming over their northern horizon that they would never see from their location on the surface of a spherical Earth. So part of this insight came from the fact that Aristotle lived at a time where people were widely traveled and people compared their stories about what the sky looked like. The other, here's a modern photograph, is the shadow of the Earth on the moon during a lunar eclipse. This is a beautiful multiple exposure photograph taken by an amateur astronomer a number of years ago. I don't have his name up here for some reason. He's a Portuguese astronomer. And you can see the outline of the shadow of the Earth as the moon passes behind it during the eclipse. A flat disk Earth could cast the shadow, but not at an oblique angle. So in order for this circle, this shape to be, of the shadow to be perfectly circular, it has to be cast by a spherical body. This is a very compelling demonstration. There are going to be some lunar eclipses coming up. We'll say more about those later in the class. Go out and watch a total lunar eclipse. It's really quite stunning. You really can see the sphericity of the Earth in the shadow of the lunar eclipse just by standing out and paying attention to it. People have been seeing lunar eclipses since as long as man looked at the sky, but it was Aristotle and others who put together the two pieces and said, hey, this is telling us the shape of the Earth because what we're seeing is a shadow cast by the Earth from sunlight. Aristotle's demonstrations and his physical arguments made in On the Heavens were extremely compelling. In fact, so compelling, by the third century BC, nobody in the classical world took the idea of a flat Earth seriously. In fact, it vanishes completely from the literature at this time. Everyone simply assumed that the Earth was spherical, not just on an appeal to geometric aesthetics, but because there were compelling physical demonstrations that anyone could in fact see. In fact, Aristotle took the, the arguments one step further looked at the shapes of the curved phases of the moon and argued from that that the moon must too be a sphere. And thereby, by extension, the sphere was in fact the most natural shape taken on not only by the Earth and the moon, 
but the sun, the planets, and indeed even the stars, fixed as they were to a gigantic crystalline sphere that defined the nighttime sky. So this idea of a spherical Earth, a spherical moon, in fact, spheres as the perfect form of the universe, came to its own being as a physical description as well as a geometric aesthetic vision. It was a very, very deep insight, which was to have a number of very important impacts later on. Now, having established the shape of the Earth, the Earth is a sphere, one can now begin to use geometry and ask the question, how big is that sphere? Is it a little sphere or is it a, t or is it a gigantic sphere? Aristotle began to address that question himself by simply noting that, for example, if the Earth was a very small sphere, these effects of the changes of the aspects of the stars as you move south would become very dramatic. You wouldn't have to travel very far before you noticed the stars had changed their position in the sky. The fact that you had to go from Greece all the way to the bottom of the Nile before you started picking up on it and made it obvious told you the sphere of the Earth had to be pretty darn big. He then used the fact that the Earth was so big to argue that the Earth could not move of its own volition and therefore must be fixed at the center of the universe. So there's one impact of establishing the Earth is really big. But saying it's really big doesn't answer the question specifically and quantitatively of just how big. The problem is it comes down to a common problem that we encounter in engineering and everyday life. How do I measure something that's a whole lot bigger than myself and a whole lot bigger than my measuring tools? For example, how do I measure the height of a mountain that's too high for me to climb? For example, we knew the height of Mount Everest long before anyone climbed it, centuries before anyone climbed it. How did that happen? How could you do that? How can you measure the Earth if the Earth is far larger than any human being can possibly walk or travel during their lifetime? Well, the answer to this, just like any other problem of measuring the size of something you're not allowed to touch or can't physically because of the limitations of your technology, is you apply geometry. And this is where the Greeks' use of acumenic geometry was to serve them greatly, as it, just as it served the Egyptians, who invented modern surveying, and the Mesopotamians, who had to survey large tracts of land and large buildings. The Greeks brought the geometry to a high art and used this to measure the circumference of the earth. And the particular person who did this, of course, it was done a couple of times in t antiquity, but the one we most remember is a man by the name of Eratosthenes of Cyrene. He was born in the generation after Aristotle. He was the second librarian of Alexandria. The Library of Alexandria was established in Alexandria was a, a seaport on the edge of the Nile Delta. A library was established there long after the death of Aristotle. The Library of, Aris, of Alexandria was also known by its Greek name as the Museon, from which we get our word museum. It really was not so much a library in the sense of a stack of books, which it was, it was a research library. In fact, in many ways, it resembles more a modern research university and library than it does, say, the, the local public library. In addition to being the greatest repository of books and knowledge of the time, the mere presence of all those books drew the greatest scholars of the Mediterranean world to Alexandria and made it one of the great centers of research and science and philosophy in the Mediterranean world. The head of the entire organization was called the Librarian of Alexandria. And this job fell to a man named Eratosthenes of Cyrene, who was born on the north coast of Africa in what is now modern Libya, sometime around the year 276 BC, and he lived until the second century BC. Now, 
Alexandria was the main seaport of the southern Mediterranean. All the traffic from the Nile and that traffic from the interior that reached the Nile passed through Alexandria on its way out. It would have been inevitable that at some point either traveler's tales or other word would have reached Eratosthenes in Alexandria of an unusual phenomenon. If you go to the southern reaches of the Nile to Syene, just before the first cataracts of the Nile, which is near the modern city of Aswan, Egypt, the sun is said to stand straight overhead on the day of the summer solstice, so that a stick put into the ground casts no shadow, or as the ancient term, as the ancient record of this put it, that the pointer of a sundial casts no shadow at the moment of noon on the summer solstice. But as an, as an astronomer and uh, scholar, Eratosthenes would have known that on that same day, which is well marked when the summer solstice occurs, the sun is high in the sky to be sure in Alexandria, but it is not straight overhead. And in fact, shadows are cast by the sun in Alexandria, located far to the north of Syene on the lower reaches of the Nile. This gave Eratosthenes a key insight. It was part and parcel of measuring those angles in a very accurate way. Here's the world of Eratosthenes. This is a 19th century reproduction of the map of Eratosthenes. By this time, after the time compared to the map I showed you earlier, the conquests of Alexander the Great occurred. They knew about India and the Indian subcontinent and the island of, they call it Taprobani down here, that's Sri Lanka, a little bit larger and located on, unfortunately, on the equator. The Arabian Sea, the Persian Gulf is now known, the Mediterranean, the Black Sea, the Caspian Sea, and again, this great ocean surrounding everything. And then the Nile River, here shown, flowing north-south. Alexandria here to the north, and Syene to the south, located on the place where the sun is overhead on the solstice, a place called the Tropic of Cancer. Well, of course, this map is a somewhat distorted view of the world. If we now look at a modern view provided courtesy of Google Earth, Alexandria, Aliskandria, which is now known in Arabic, is up here in northern Egypt. You follow down the course of the Nile to reach Aswan, ancient Syene, which is in fact just a little bit north of the Tropic of Cancer, the line where the sun would be exactly overhead. But it's close enough that the difference in latitude between where Syene really is and where the tropic actually is is small enough that it would effectively cast no shadow. You would have to have very, very accurate instruments to be able to tell the difference here. So here's how this works. The basic observation is as follows. The day of the summer solstice, when the sun is overhead on the Tropic of Cancer, no shadow is cast at Syene. So that tells Eratosthenes that Syene is on or very near the Tropic of Cancer. But at the same time, Alexandria is north of Syene along the curve of the Earth's surface. And so the sun never gets straight overhead because the sun never comes as far north as the Tropic and therefore shadows are still cast. They're the shortest shadows of the year, but they're shadows nonetheless. So what you do is you measure the angle of the sun in Alexandria at noon on the summer solstice at exactly the same time the sun would be overhead or is reported to be overhead in Syene. That angle measures by geometry the angle along the curve of the earth between Alexandria and Syene. That's a lot of words. We need a picture. I'm exaggerating the scale here for effect. We have a spherical Earth. The center's here. I place two posts in the ground, and I make them per perpendicular to the ground locally. Here in Alexandria, that would be this direction, pointing away from the center of the Earth. 
And as Syene, the pole would be perpendicular to the ground here at a slightly different angle. Now the sun is sufficiently far away that the rays of light are parallel, both at the location of Syene and Alexandria. The difference in position of the sun is very small because the sun is so much further away than the size of the Earth. So at Syene, the rays of light appear to come straight down, and they hit the top of the post, and so no shadow is cast. Whereas at Alexandria, they hit the post at a slight angle, and so you cast a very short shadow up here to the north. So you get a north-facing shadow because the sun is south of straight overhead in the sky, whereas at Syene, the sun is straight up, and so you cast no shadow at all. Now, if you draw a few lines here, radiating outwards from the center of the Earth, you see that lines coming out radially from the center of the Earth pass through the posts like this, and we have a line crossing two parallel lines. Geometry tells you that the inside angles of a line crossing two parallel lines are congruent or the same. So Eratosthenes knew that if he measured this angle here, it was measuring exactly this angle between the arc of Alexandria to Syene. And he measured that angle, and he reported it as 1 50th of the arc of a circle, or 7 and 12 60ths of a degree. So that angle here, measured as the sun angle at Alexandria, is in fact measuring the difference in latitude, we would say, of 7 degrees and 12 60ths between Alexandria and Syene. So now you know how big this arc is, and you know that the arc of a complete circle is 360 degrees. And so all that's left is to do the math. So, to review, at Syene, the sun is directly overhead, no shadows cast. At Alexandria, the sun angle is 7 and 12 sixths of a degree south of overhead, casting a shadow towards the north. Since a full circle is 360 degrees, the arc from Alexandria to Syene is 7 and 12 sixtieths of a degree divided by 360, or 1 fiftieth of the arc of a complete circle. So now Eratosthenes knew that the distance from Syene to Alexandria was 1 fiftieth, the circumference of the Earth. Very simple geometry. So simple, you could even do it on a homework problem. Now comes the real problem, okay? You've now established the circumference of the Earth is 50 times the straight airline distance from Alexandria to Syene. So how far is Alexandria from Syene? Well, he knew that. It's 5,000 stadies. You do it by looking at the travel stages down the Nile and making a few corrections for the bends and wiggles. Okay, that's good. How big is a stady? Well, it's easy. It's 600 Greek feet. So how big is a Greek foot? We got any Greeks? We can measure your foot. Um, this is a problem for understanding Eratosthenes' measurement. I can express the size of the Earth, the circumference of the Earth in stades, but I'd like to express it in kilometers, because that's kind of more useful. The best guess, or the best estimate, is that one stady is about 185 meters, and it's a so-called Attic, or Athenian stady. Now, you'll notice the word stady is related to the word stadium. In fact, a stady was the length of a foot race being held, not surprisingly, in a stadium. And if you then said, well, how long was that foot race? It was a race of 600 Greek feet in length. So the way in which we've determined archaeologically what the stady was, was to go to Athens, Greece, to the 
excavation of the original Athenian Stadium and measure the length of a foot race that would be run in the Athenian Stadium. The stadium was also used as a general measurement for architecture, and one of the pieces of architecture built at the same time as the Athenian Stadium is the Parthenon on the high hill overlooking Athens. And by making measurements of the size of the Parthenon, use that information to determine what the size of the stadium is. Now, there's many different books have many different sizes for the stadium. Could be 157 meters, 146 meters. There's been some recent scholarship to show that some of those measurements are in error. But in fact, it's most likely that Eratosthenes, who had contact with Athens, was using the Attic stadium, which was common in the second century. So now we know that the Earth, how big it is, and we know how to convert stadies, the ancient unit, into modern meters and kilometers. So let's do the numbers. The size of the Earth is 50 times the distance from Alexandria. The circumference of the Earth is 50 times the distance from Alexandria to Syene. So it's 50 times 5,000 stadies, the distance between the two, or 250,000 stadies in circumference. 250,000 stadies times 185 meters per stadi gives a circumference of 46,250 kilometers. That's a remarkable number. The modern value is 40,070 kilometers along the north-south meridian, which is about 15% so that Eratosthenes' measurement is only 15% larger than the actual modern size for for the Earth. Now remember that Eratosthenes was using not modern instruments, but simply an account of being shadowless in Syene on the summer solstice. By measuring the angle of sun at Alexandria, he was able to correctly derive to the right approximation to within about 10-15% the actual size of the Earth. And in fact, given some of our uncertainties about the exact length of the stadi, this is close enough that we can say with some confidence that Eratosthenes measured the circumference of the Earth in the second century BC to an accuracy which was not rivaled until the modern age. And he did so using the very simple geometry allowed by assuming that the Earth was a sphere following the physical demonstrations of Aristotle. This meant the Earth was really big, and this really hammered down the whole idea that the Earth was too big to be moving of its own volition, and really fixed in people's minds now in a physical sense the idea of the Earth as fixed and unmoving at the center of the universe. So that's one of the consequences of the immense size of the Earth. Now, there's not the only, Eratosthenes, unfortunately, has had nearly all of his works destroyed by the ravages of time. We actually do not have Eratosthenes' personal first-person account of how he measured the circumference of the Earth. We only know of it in second-hand accounts of people who either use his number in their geography books or by an obscure work from the first to third century AD, we're not even sure when it was written to 200 years, which describes one-fiftieth of the arc of the circle, and 5,000 stadies between Alexandria and Syene. Clearly, those numbers are conveniently rounded off. Why is it exactly one-fiftieth and exactly 5,000 stadies? Don't those numbers look suspicious? They are. Because very likely, in transmission, they've been garbled. They've been rounded off for sim- to make their presentation simpler. For all we know, Eratosthenes may have, in fact, nailed the circumference of the Earth to the modern value. Now, that 150th number actually turns out to be the correct difference in latitude between Syene and Alexandria, measured with modern techniques. It's within 1%. So if if he actually knew a better refined distance for the distance 
distance between Alexandria and Syene, he would have in fact measured the circumference of the Earth to vary within a few percent of the modern value. The problem is, all we have is a garbled account. But we do have more accurate accounts from antiquity, and they come from the second century AD. They come from a man named Claudius Ptolemy, who lived in Alexandria, in, in, again, same place as Eratosthenes, but now in the Roman age. It was in the late classical age. He was the great geometer and astronomer of this period. He's known to us primarily because his works have survived in total. Now, in addition to being the father of geography, which we'll say more about tomorrow, he also, in his work on geography, naturally estimated the size of the Earth. To do this, he actually used observations by someone else, a guy named Marinus of Tyre, who himself was working on some other guy's observations, looking at measurements of the appearances of the height of stars, rather than using the sun over Syene. Those measurements gave a circumference of 28,800 kilometers, substantially smaller than the 40,000-odd kilometers found by Eratosthenes. In fact, it's 72% smaller than the actual size of the Earth. Now, I bring this up, even though we're going to say it's a wrong number, because though it's a wrong number, it was very convincingly presented, and it was to be highly influential for nearly 14 centuries. This became, by default, the size of the Earth used by most scholars up through the Middle Ages into the Renaissance, because among other things, it was convincingly demonstrated with techniques that they could reproduce and by the pure accident that it survived and the works of Eratosthenes did not. Now, somewhere in between, after the fall of the Roman Empire in around the 3rd or 4th centuries, a lot of this knowledge was lost and it passed into Syriac lands where it eventually got translated into Arabic, a different story for a different day. The idea of a flat earth underwent a short revival in the third century. In fact, some early Christian scholars really went too far to throw out all the pagan knowledge, and in the process of that, threw out the pagan notion of the spherical earth. They didn't do this without opposition. St. Augustine railed against these people for a long time in the fourth century AD, calling them fools for throwing out the baby with the bathwater, in effect by ignoring knowledge simply because it didn't meet their narrow expectations. But the idea of this pagan absurdity of a spherical earth actually reemerged, even though it has nothing whatsoever to do with Christian beliefs. It found a lodgment in a world that was forgetting its own knowledge. And it was held sporadically until about the year 1300 AD. Most people didn't really think the earth was flat, but a few did. And it kind of went through fashions until 1300. By 1300, the works of Aristotle, of Plato, of Pythagoras, and the others had eventually worked their way in from Arabia through Spain back into the European world, and the Europeans rediscovered their classical heritage. As a consequence, the work of Ptolemy and later of Aristotle came into play, and people realized, yeah, these arguments for the spherical Earth were so compelling that this flat Earth nonsense, just forget it. And so after about 1300, Really, nobody doubted the idea that the Earth was a sphere. If you'd gone into any of the educated portions of Europe by 1300 and said the Earth was flat, they'd laugh at you and boot you out, because it was clearly a nutty idea. And so if you, except for this few aberrations here, I think it's really safe to say that we've known that the Earth has been a sphere for more than 2,300 years, with only occasional craziness. Now, Eratosthenes' work, unfortunately, was lost. It wasn't actually revived until much later, and again, only in these obscure secondary sources. But Ptolemy 
was highly influential. His book was so good that the Arabs called it the greatest compendium of all knowledge, by which in Arabic is Al-Majisti, and thence our name for the book, the Al-Majest. Now, if we take Ptolemy's estimate of the size of the Earth at face value, remember that circumference in modern units is about 28,800 kilometers. We're very secure in that measurement because Ptolemy was working in the late Roman period and he expressed the circumference in Roman miles. And we know how long the Roman mile is because the archaeological evidence is so sound, unlike the case with the Stadium. Now, if this is the case, then that would make the eastern tip of Asia very close to the western tip of Europe because the Earth's circumference is much smaller. This convinced a Genoese mariner in the employ of the crown of Spain by the name of Christopher Columbus that if Ptolemy's value for the circumference of the Earth was correct, that it would be possible to sail west past the Canaries out into the great western ocean and that you would, in a very short time, reach the eastern tip of Asia. And he was convinced of this because the Earth would have been small enough to be within range of the very small sailing ships available in the late 15th century. This is a map. It's made by a, a, a man by the name of Martin Beheim. This is an English translation of that map, made early in the year 1492, based on the geography of Claudius Ptolemy using the small Earth. Here's Europe, and now the more familiar outlines of Africa, Asia, China, uh, the island of Ceylon is, Sri Lanka is still way too big for some reason. England, Spain are all visible here and recognizable in this map. The eastern edge of Asia is less well known. Sapango here is Japan. The vast islands of the South Pacific and the Spice Islands down here, which had all been explored going this way around Africa to the east, are all shown much more exaggerated into the Western Ocean. In fact, there's a few strange places like the mythical St. Brendan's Isle there, the Azores, the Canary Islands out in here. This is how the world looked in the year 1492, early in that year, in the famous Baheim Globe. And it's how it looked on an August morning of that same year when three small vessels of Spanish manufacture stood out to sea and sailed to the west. And when they returned, this world map was gone and the world had changed. See you all tomorrow.